Hello and welcome to the Ballot Box Global Election Coverage from a team of political scientists. I'm Jonathan Parker in London. I'm Chris Terry in Manchester. I'm Andres Besser in New York City. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of The Ballot Box. So we're recording this at the same time as the, the last episode where we discussed Argentina, but this is about Chile, which is uh, one of our favourite countries to talk about, and this is an incredibly significant election for the country. So we thought this deserved its um, the, the treatment of an entire episode to itself. So we're really going to get stuck into um, to Chile this this episode, um, which has been really like, um, which will be a really consequential election whoever wins the the runoff on the 19th of December um but we're going to just run down through the um through the 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 first round of the presidential elections which took place on the 21st of November alongside elections to both the chamber of deputies and the senate as well um and see kind of what they what they um hold for the for the future of Chile um as well, I will dispense with asking people how you are and assume you are the same as you were half an hour ago when I asked that question in our time. <laughs> yeah. Still waiting, still waiting on Thanksgiving turkey. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. In preparation mm. for overeating. It, it's a slightly darker and colder than it was. Well, I'm slightly warmer because um, my partner has put the heating on in the time since oh, the last yeah. episode. So, <laughs> sorry, no. our, our, our radiators need replacing, so that's a, <laughs> an issue that we. <laughs> oh, we 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 had we had ours fixed today. How coincidental! Yeah, I'll done shortly. Uh, so anyway, that's enough talk about our yes. radiators. Enough, yeah, enough <laughs> of the, the thrilling radiator talk. Um, and on to, to Chile. Um, so we thought we this is the second time this year we've been in um in Chile. Well, if they're, this, this, theoretically speaking, we've been in Chile talking about Chilean politics anyway. Um we had the uh, the constitutional assembly elections earlier this year, which was a really fascinating contest because it was a, a type of election we don't really get to cover um, quite so much and um, please do definitely um, go back and check that episode out if you want a bit of um, a bit of a, a bit of more background on to what um, that was all about and the, and the new kind of constitution we're going to go through a little bit of that um, I'm sure again today is some background but that one will we'll go into a lot more detail about that um, and I think we also right back at the start we just discussed a little bit about the the um, the referendum in Chile um, towards the end of last year as well that resulted in the in the constitutional um, assembly. Um, so lots of Chile coverage out there already um, for you. We remember in that election that we saw a quite of a, a, a huge win for for parties of the left um, in in that election. And mm. um, I think the the left wing lists in this election have I think um, please correct me if I'm wrong but they've gained us a, a combined have gained a sort of slight majority in in their congress but this election has also been marked by the rise of a candidate um, of the um, I think it's called the the, uh, the radical or populist right um, um, Jose Antonio Cast who has kind of been making headlines not just in Chile but this has caught some international attention as well um, and been running quite a kind of hard right campaign which has saw him um, eventually um, kind of displace the mainstream right alliance and, and come out on top in the in the runoff in the in the first round rather um, so yeah so obviously this is the main thing that I think people are reporting any other headlines from this election you think we should we should lead off with I mean, yeah. So I guess the headline is not only the rise of uh, of the kind of populist right wing candidate, but also uh, the rise of a candidate um, that's very much left of center. And the fact that this is the first time that no candidate from either of the centrist parties will advance to the second round of elections. Mm. I think that that's very momentous. And it's kind of showing a broader trend in Chilean politics where centrism is being left behind in at least or it's like a nonsense it's like a um centrifugal moment in in chilean politics yes so it's a mass polarization is the other way you could very easily put it um yeah yeah and it's very much the interaction of institutional incentives and social forces i think that that's mm. yeah yeah, I, I, the way I 
I briefly summed it up on Twitter was like um was um that the problems that the Chilean constitution had created had led to a backlash in terms of the rise of the radical left and now we're in the form of caste we're seeing the backlash to the backlash that's right yeah um maybe some, some yeah it, caste is in a way i think you're absolutely you're totally right he's um he's occupying the place that the center right could not partially because of lack of legitimacy but also because mm. they've been viewed as having exacerbated social tension in in the country i think um mm. fumbling so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, in a, in a way, it's kind of so. There's a lot of ways of looking at this election that makes sense, and one that I think is happening at a kind of broader level is that Chilean society is currently debating what to do with its economic success, and and whether and actually debating whether what what the world generally sees as economic su success is indeed that. Um, yeah. So Chile is going to Chile is like one of the most advanced economies. In Latin America and now really like the world, it's a success story from many points of view in terms of macroeconomics, but a lot of people feel left behind. There's incredible inequality. Um, there are also very antiquated uh, laws on the books mm. in terms of like um, social issues and also kind of economic issues. And so yeah. I think a lot of this is like society acting up and trying to kind of like debating around whether or not they want to follow a model that looks more like, I don't know, a welfare state in Europe, or whether it looks more something like the United States, where there's very few redistributive um, efforts, and, and there's a primacy of the, of the market, yeah. um, and, and some traditional norms. Yeah, although we should probably briefly say that um, that that term economic success, I, I imagine a lot of Chileans would probably object to it um, on the basis, firstly, on the basis that the economy has recently been going through a slowdown, which I think is probably part of the story here as well. You know, if, if the country in the past wasn't able to provide equality through um, its social institutions, at least through um, economic growth, you make a promise a kind of certain level of your 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 living standard going up, um, and that slowdown I think is part of the, certainly part of what's going on, um, and also of course the fact that the country is incredibly unequal. Um, so um, for for people for a lot of people that that success is not um, being felt. Right, right. That that's like, like the the notion of success itself is being debated whether or not it's. Mm. it's yeah, and and I also think that there's an institutional story, uh, which is the which is about institutional incentives, the incentives created around electoral rules. The first the first is obviously the the, the runoff presidential system, um, that mm. allows for voters or incentivizes voters to not vote strategically in the first round and can lead to a degree of polarization. We saw that in, for example, the case of Peru or Ecuador to a degree, um, but also the end of mandatory voting, I think, um, mm. and, and kind of a, 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 a decrease in voter turnout and the consequences wow. that that might have. I'd also throw on top of that the um, change of the congressional electoral system to a form of PR away from the former binomial system, which um, we discussed this in a little bit. Uh, we discussed this a little bit in the previous uh, um, episode on Chile, so I won't go into a huge amount of depth. But for those who aren't familiar, essentially the the Chile had until relatively recently an electoral system which had two member constituencies where almost everywhere you could only really elect one candidate from the left-wing coalition, one candidate from the right-wing coalition, which um, created um, which um, created deadlock, but it also meant that competitors outside those two coalitions couldn't really um, compete in the same way. Um, and Chile has since then changed to uh, has once relatively recently i think only a couple of terms ago 2017 
2017. So yeah, only really a, a, almost a single term ago, um, changed to having um, a, a kind of more typical PR list system, which has allowed other parties to gain entry into um, Congress and politics more broadly. That's right. And now electoral districts have between three, well, elect between three and eight Congress people instead of the the two. So a lot of con a lot of districts were consolidated into larger districts, and now elect between three and eight, which also eliminated this massive rural bias that existed within the binomial system. Mm. I think that that's a great point, Chris. That's that's actually one of that's a really important driver of. Uh, like multi-partyism and kind of centri centrifugal trends can be translated into formal politics because of that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I'm glad we got the, the Chilean binomial system in. I, I, uh, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to sleep if I didn't mention the binomial like, system, one of the worst electoral systems ever created. <laughs> ballot, ballot box greatest hits to like complain about an electoral system from it. <laughs> My, Good that we got a chance to discuss that. My my hatred of the binomial system is continual. <laughs> and I'll never stop talking about it until, <laughs> even though it's dead now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so we um, otherwise constitutionally, I mean, this is again, this is like it's fairly standard Latin American president. Uh, it's a presidential system. Otherwise, like a bicameral Congress, Chamber of mm. Deputies, Senate president they don't do midterms or anything like that though everything gets elected at once um uh, um or at the same time which is what happened this time um but yeah to tell us i'd be interested to know a bit, bit about the um especially given that we might come out with a a very threatening um sort of democracy wise uh, president on the end of this about the distribution of power between the the congress the congressional houses and the and the executive in chile um, how, 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 what is the power balance here, um, kind of thing? Yeah, it's my understanding that the president is really, is really powerful in terms of both um, legislative initiative and also veto. Um, the Senate acts as a kind of, um, as a typical kind of upper house in the sense that it's got more of a uh, uh, kind of, it's, it's got less initiative powers, but it has review powers. The Senate is elected every eight years, which means that only a portion of this of the chamber of, of the upper house is elected alongside the chamber of deputies and the president. But the chamber of deputies is every four years, and so is the presidential um, system. Sorry, just another note is that the president there's no consecutive re-election in Chile, so the same candidate can't run twice in a row, and you've seen that for the last four presidential terms, where it was Michel Bachelet, followed by Piñera, followed by Bachelet, followed by Piñera, who is currently the president of, of Chile. So that's a, mm. that's another kind of important rule. Um, but the president is is very, very powerful, especially under the current constitution, which was, a, which as we, we spoke about this in, when we covered the constitutional convention, is really powerful. And it's kind of an overhang from, from dictatorship. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a particularly powerful legislative. Yes, and we should probably also briefly touch upon, as we discussed in the episode on the constitution, one of the reasons why the constitution is now being looked at being changed is because there's lots of ways in which the constitution is essentially designed very explicitly to stop. Um, major changes to the legacy of the Pinochet regime, particularly its economic legacy. Um, so, um, and and that um, itself, so that you had a period before the um, before the first Pinera term where Chile had been governed by a central by parties from the centre left. Um, coalition for two and a half decades, basically, and and um, still, also, albeit while this was a very heterogeneous coalition and, and um, it, it still huge portions of the Pinochet legacy were kind of remained in place, and um, people continually electing these more or less. 
And the left government's probably at better terms of that. I mean, the so the constitution. I think the the Pinochet constitution does impose limits on what a central left wing government could do. Mm. But one of the critiques loved, loved against the central left wing governments is that they also did not push the envelope. So mm. like, for instance, you know, even socially progressive laws could have been passed with it under this constitution in, in that like even just after after this election, the, the Chamber of Deputies discussed and passed the a proposal for same sex marriage, right? Like yes. that could have passed even with that can pass even within this constitution. Um, so, so the constitution was also kind of like a. Um, some people suggest it was a convenient excuse for the center left to uh, to appeal to more traditional or conservative types as well. And so, yeah. yeah, I would also suggest that um, one of the issues was that because of the combination of this system and, and the binomial system and all the other things that the center left had to have the, had to be extremely broad. So you had, so it, it, when we talk about these two coalitions that govern Chile, it's worth noting that they are very broad churches in and of themselves, but uh, which meant that, for example, you have in the same coalition um, on, on, had on the, in the same coalition on the center left, the, Socialist Party, the party of um, Allende, who was famously cooed in, by the um, by Pinochet, um, with um, the Christian Democrats, who prior to um, that had occupied a position that um, didn't sit with either kind of a left wing or right wing bloc. Essentially, we're kind of Chilean third force, um, and so, so this is a kind of and so within that, even when you had presidents who, for example, Bachelet, who was from the Socialist Party, you still had to work within the confines of their coalition partners um, to some extent to hold the coalition together because that was seen as more important in some ways. And um, yeah, so. Uh, and, and but I agree with you. There are also kind of institu more institutional stuff. It's been pointed out by a number of people that a huge number of the parties of the center left are kind of ruled by political dynasties who perhaps don't have the same kind of connection to um, the, the kind of issues that kind of dog Chile as like voters do. You know, the, the the Christian Democratic Party right now is ruled by someone whose surname is Frey. There have been multiple presidents in Chilean history from the Christian Democratic Party whose surname was Frey because it's an immense political dynasty and that dynasty still has this kind of particularly strong kind of root in, 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 within that party. I think that, I think that that was a good um, kind of institution, constitutional setup kind of background to the yes. election of uh, Boric and Cast, who we're going to pass on to the second round. Um, I don't know how how much we want to go into, like how far back should one go in, in the kind of background to an election? Mm. Um, I think all, all of our listeners know about Pinochet and the fact that he ruled between 73 and 1990. There was a pact of transition um, that led to like a government of centrists um, that have ruled that that have been in power since like the 1990s, and by centrist I mean like center right and center left, some alternating. Um, they you know in the, in the in the last kind of period saw two two really important figures: Michel Bachelet on the center left, Sebastián Piñera on the center right. Um, Piñera is currently the the president of Chile. He's one of the country's ten richest people, um, and he I mean. Uh, he's a controversial figure. We're going to talk more about him. And this kind of centrist uh, period saw a moment of very high growth for the Chilean economy. Um, and, and this puts Chile in position number three in terms of Latin American countries like uh, GDP per capita. Only Panama and Uruguay are, are above Chile in, in, in like GDP per capita. And in fact, Chile is, I was surprised to, to see that Chile has a higher GDP per capita than Hungary, Poland, or Croatia. Yeah. Are, 
which are in Europe. Um, I mean, they're, they're relatively poor countries in the European context. Um, but yeah, Europe is a much richer. Um, yeah, continent. I mean, those countries are within the upper tier of CEE, broadly mm -hmm. speaking. That's probably the best way of putting it. The kind of good yeah. people with them. Yeah. yeah. So Chile is really like, in aggregate, in kind of aggregate terms, it's a very rich country for Latin America, and it's it's. Um, mm. Yeah, these kind of aggregate measures, Chile comes up comes out really, really well. But this period also saw the you know growth of enormous inequality that's existed in Chile in Chile for forever, really. Um, and it has like a Gini coefficient of forty four point four, so that's about like very close to like Mexico or Brazil. Um, so you know, extremely in a, extremely unequal. Unlike um, Hungary, Poland, or Croatia, which have much lower um, Gini coefficients. So a lot of people feel left behind in, in Chile's economic growth. Um, there, it's also true that this period of centrism left untouched some very um, some aspects that exacerbate inequality, such as the fact that public education is is really meager in Chile, and people still have to pay a lot of money for university. Um, water has been privatized, and that's like um, it, that's that's. Uh, it's kind of protected by the by the constitution. Um, the price of of the costs of living have gone up and and have been kind of um, not been kind of reined in. And in fact, um, there's a period, the most recent period of of uh, political history in Chile, has what some have called el estallido or the outburst, which began when the when the rise in subway subway fares in in Santiago, the, the country's capital. Um, sparked, uh, you know, they were the spark that lit the flame of, of a social movement that demanded redistribution, bigger social safety nets, less inequality, and eventually also demanded a new constitution. And one of the reasons why these protests kept growing is that these protests for like pocketbook issues were met with incredible repression on the part of the Piñera government, which just made, actually made the, the protests more intense. And reminded people of the of the time of the dictatorship, um, but Pineda had to relent, and eventually um, uh, there was a referendum to see whether or not people wanted a new constitution. They voted yes, and then there was an election for a constitutional convention, where and people you know there's currently there's a constitutional convention that is left mostly left leaning and that is drafting a new proposal for a constitution. And I'm pretty sure we're going to cover. Um, the the referendum that is that that will then be have to be held with regards to the new draft of the constitution to see whether or not Chileans support adopting it. So yeah, I mean, I, I would add another two really important kind of uh, background aspects to this election. One is the Mapuche, the conflict in the south of Chile with an indigenous group, the largest indigenous group of the country called the Mapuche people. Um, there's a group of activists who are reclaiming land, ancestral land that is currently occupied by large agricultural businesses and timber corporations. Um, this is a conflict that's been going on for many, many years, but it was rekindled since around 2016, and then it got even a second wind during the more general kind of upsurge or el estallido, right? These kind of massive protest movements. And some Mapuche activists have engaged in what Pineda has been happy to call terrorism. So a church was, was lit, lit on fire, set on fire in a kind of uh, symbolic move um, against kind of what some of Mapuche activists view as the continuation of colonialism because you know you know the Spanish colonialism um, and they've also disrupted the work of, of several several agricultural businesses by setting machinery on fire or destroying it um, but rather than seeking dialogue Pineda was very happy to um, I don't know very happy but Pineda his 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 strategy was to react quite brutally and declare a state of emergency in militarization of these regions. So he sent the army to four provinces in the south in, in very publicly declaring that there was a kind of a national security threat. And this is really interesting because although Latin America has many issues of governance and 
kind of armed struggle, we hardly hear the language of terrorism being employed um, in the way that it's employed maybe in, in other kind of more advanced democracies. Um, but in this case, Pineda has, has used that in order to kind of have a sort of rally around the flag effect. He, he declared the militarization of the provinces in the lead up to the election. And only four days after having been, um, uh, only four days after the, the Chile's, Chile's prosecutor declared that he would start an investigation into Piñera because of the, the uh, because of the Pandora papers. So there was a controversial selling of a mine in 2010 by Piñera's son <laughs> while Piñera was, was president. And the Pandora papers have revealed that his son used an offshore company um, to sell this mine. And there is a hint in these papers that the sale might have been done under the understanding that Chile's government would pass regulation that was favorable for mining and therefore increase the value of the mine. Pineda has obviously um, uh, refused to acknowledge this and has uh, denied any wrongdoing, but there was also, it was a very public thing and um, the Chamber of Deputies also started an impeachment proceeding against him that didn't prosper in the Senate. But so some people have, have united these two things, the Pandora paper scandal and debacle really for, for Pineda and the fact that he would then go in and declare militarization of these four provinces. Um, this is not unlike the sort of strategy he took um, in the face of the protest where instead of creating kind of conditions for dialogue with protesters after the subway fare increase, his first move was to um, really kind of clamp, you know, clamp down on them and, and use quite repressive tactics um, in what seemed, in what he thought would kind of prop him up. And it does in the, in the, in the eyes of many Chileans, it does kind of prop up his position, but he's already very delegitimized. And you could see that in the fact that his, his his party lost, you know, in in this first round of of, uh, of elections. Yeah, yes, with a, a candidate who, um, to some extent, has been seen as quite connected to him, following a very similar strategy to him as well. Um, albeit he's from a different party within the right wing coalition, but um, but um, Pinheiro from what I understand, is kind of a slightly interesting figure in terms of the right-wing coalition in Chile, because the right-wing coalition in Chile is essentially a coalition of the parties that wanted Pinochet to stay. Um, and and the, the other party within the coalition, the UDI is the bigger, bigger party, um, has usually led the coalition more than um, Pinero's party, the RN, which is seen as more moderate and more liberal um and and Pinera kind of managed to kind of and and the party kind of lost for a long time because it was seen as having this Pinochet legacy um, and Pinera kind of won his first election in part not entirely because he didn't seem to have this kind of scary Pinochet baggage and and um, seemed like someone who was kind of liberal and who could be government democracy. So it, it's an interesting moment, I think, for the Chilean right that that strategy seems to have failed. Um, in part because, as we've just referenced, Pinero has kind of revealed his slightly more authoritarian side, um, but in favour of someone who is kind of more explicitly in that kind of Pinochet, Pinochet loyalist mold. Um, yeah, and I think your point about the, the legacy of Pinochet is really, really crucial to understanding a lot of what's going on in Chile or what goes on. Um, in a way, kind of like Spain, like other countries that have had authoritarian governments in the past, um, the legacy of the dictatorship is in, kind of in constant reinterpretation and a lot of the political battles around um, a lot of the politics in the country revolve around how to interpret that legacy so 
there's definitely, I mean, there's definitely a, a, a large part of, of society that views at least the effects of the dictatorship as positive. Maybe not the period itself, um, where I think, you know, most Chileans recognize that the abuses of human rights were just absolutely hor horrific. Um, but some people will say it was worth it, right? Um, or there, there was something that he did right because Chile is now kind of quite prosperous and the rest of Latin America is not quite as prosperous, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you even sometimes get people in the West who, who perhaps know better kind of vaunting um, Chile's economic progress under Pinochet, um, which is a great shame in my mind, but yeah. Um, it, it, it's obviously had this kind of complex kind of set of outcomes in the future as well like but, but yeah it does come up yeah um and I, I think another another important uh kind of background issue and by background i mean like uh kind of a tool to interpret what when what's been going on in chilean elections is the, is 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 around voter turnout and um I think voter turnout is actually really important for for so many um, so many elections and the logic of, of a lot of elections. But voter turnout has been uh, linked to polarization in other in other political systems. And in Chile, there was it, it's it's linked. You can link it. There's at least a kind of a good hypothesis to be made because um, the, the election for the constituent the constituent assembly, which was this huge deal actually, um, only had a forty three percent voter turnout, right? Um, and this election also only had a forty three percent turnout out of a possible out of a universe of fifteen million eligible voters. Um, and there's a story to this, and that is between nineteen ninety and two thousand nine, voting in Chile was mandatory. And enroll, enrollment in the voters' role was voluntary. So, um, but but because it was mandatory, there was a kind of a higher, there was a much higher turnout. So the universes of, then in 2009, Piñera suggested and actually got passed a reform where, where enrollment in the voters' role became automatic based on a national identity document. Mm. but turnout became voluntary. When turnout was mandatory, what that meant was if you did not show up to vote, you would then get a fine and you were, and you, you, you would not be able to, to um, get other official documents such as a passport renewed if you hadn't paid the fine for not having showed up to vote. And that's, that's a really, I mean, that's, there are other, there are other democracies that do that, but it does increase turnout, right? And the university and incredibly successful, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very successful. So the turnout be, before 2009, before uh, while when the vote was still mandatory, when you know hovered around the high 80s, like 87, 88 percent mm. of the electorate would turn out to vote. Now, after 2009, when that was strapped, we saw a plummet on, in turnout. The universe is not comparable because now the universe of turnout is calculated based on automatic enrollment, which means that many more people were enrolled in the voters role. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and indeed not, but indeed before that, of course, before that, the consequence is that if you don't want to vote, the best way to go about it is just not registering. Right. Because that, right. Way, that, that, that way you won't get fined if you don't vote and you can just go about your life. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but when, when the mandatory voting was strapped, there was a set, there was a decrease in the total number of votes, right? So mm. now we have turnout um, percentages that are around the 40s, high 40s, uh, at most 50%, but also an overall decrease in the amount of voting, especially when compared to the increase in, in adult population in Chile, right? So even in elections where there's the same amount of voting happening, the same number of voters as in the past, that's still a much much smaller percentage because Ch the Chilean adult population has increased. Mm. So, what happens when there are fewer voters, and and how is this linked, possibly linked to polarization? 
one one reason is that a um so so right so um why would these mass protests then be met with apathy right that's kind of a puzzle why would kind of these left-wing uh, victories in the constitutional convention then be followed by the success of a kind of populist right-wing candidate right like these are puzzles that kind of fit the hypothesis of uh, turnout polarization. So when there's when there's a small electorate, changes in opinion, even if relatively small, have a larger impact in the electorate as a whole. Um, the electorate becomes more fickle. Peter Mayer has a great um, has a great kind of insights into this in Ruling the Void, which is an incredibly interesting but depressing book. <laughs> and then the other mechanism is that low turnout usually means that those who tend to vote are the one are the are the people who are most politically engaged to begin with, who tend to have more extreme political opinions, especially in the age of social media. So I think this is a really important part of the Chilean story, especially like how to make sense of this election that saw Boric on the quite far left and cast on the very far right. Um, and especially cast winning after after protest and the victory of like left wing groups in the in the convention, um, and and low turnout makes very makes it very difficult to predict what's going to happen afterwards. Um, precisely because uh, vote like the, the ag aggregate voters tend to be more fickle. They appear to be more fickle than than they would be if there were um, if there were higher turnout. Yeah, well, I mean, that that can be for a kind of mix of reasons that's kind of worth briefly mentioning. So for one thing, so voters who don't turn, voters who tend to be least likely to be turned out, turn out also tend to be the least politically interested and um, less politically interested voters are also typically, um, are also typically less ideological voters. Um, but if you're with really low turnout, what you're very often look out looking at is that it's not the same voters set of voters. So, like we might have forty three percent turnout in um, the constitutional uh, convention um, earlier this year. We might have forty three percent turnout now, but you might be looking at two entirely different sets of. You might be looking at two very different sets of voters because of who has been who has felt. Um, who has felt um, motivated to turn out in those elections. Um, so if you have low turnout elections, to, it, it, things become much more about who is actually motivated to vote. That's a really good point. That is an excellent point. All right. Um, hmm. yeah. there's, more, there's more to be said about the Chilean <laughs> context. Yes. But I think we should get out to the candidates. Yeah, let's. So, so I thought we should maybe um, we can deal with the obviously all of the main coalitions have put forward candidates, and so maybe we can sort of deal with the um, the candidates and the coalitions in one go kind of thing. Because I think there's some interesting things to talk about. That I want to that I'm interested in asking about is the some of the discrepancies between the um, the list. Mm. results in the chamber of deputies and the um the, the kind of the the candidates results um in for the presidential contest because they don't they don't match up by and large um at all um so for cast for instance has far outperformed his party's list um mm. in in the in in congress and also the the class the the kind of main um traditional center left center right blocks um, have also done much better than their candidates in congressional ballots. Um, obviously, mm. they're a shadow of their former selves, both of them. Um, so that's something to like um, be interesting to kind of pick up on as we go through. Um, but yeah, maybe we should just start with the um, the largest, the the the, the man who um, unfortunately has won the most votes in the um, in the first round of the presidential election, um, um, Jose Antonio Cast. Um, who is his party is the is the Republican Party and is um, the alliance that they've run under is called the Christian Social Front. What is so? Yes, yeah, so please let's just to get into get into cast and, and maybe get him over with. Um, how <laughs> tell us a bit? Of, tell us a bit about um, tell us a bit about this man and um, 
what he believes and how he's risen to this position. Yeah, so Cast is actually not, he's not an outsider to, to politics. He ran uh, for president in 2017 and he's been, he was a congressman at the time. He, he's, he, he still is, so he was elected twice um, as a congressman. Um, in 2019, he founded his own party, the, the Republican Party. Mm. He is, I mean, uh, Anne Applebaum in The Twilight of Democracy has a whole chapter on nostalgia, the nostalgia that inspires illiberalism in, in Eastern Europe. And I think that that's a really great characterization of, of caste. He is, he is um, he's banking on a certain nostalgia for um, a more kind of conservative past order that, has, that was created through coercion, really, in the case of Chile. Um, it's often, you know, and, and the nostalgia of the liberals is often based on a past that did not exist. It's a past that's imagined. Um, and it's one that, you know, was under, that is underpinned by authoritarian tendencies, right? So Cast has openly praised Bolsonaro of Brazil and actually met with him. He's openly praised Pinochet and some aspects of the dictatorship. He underlined, uh, he's, he's, he's also kind of openly sexist. Um, and, mm. and there's a link between patriarchy and uh dictatorship like Pinochet's that was legitimized through ultra-Catholic ideas, right? Same as Franco and Salazar in Spain and, and Portugal. He, had, he said that married women were more worthy than unmarried women at some point. He's promised to abolish the secretary of, of women if elected president. Um, he has said that public order, traditional family, and a continuation of Chile's economic model are the road forward. He's accused Bachelet of made up consp conspiracies. So in the 2017 election, he said that she had trafficked Haitians, Haitian immigrants into Chile, which is obviously a ludicrous um, kind of accusation. So based on lies. <laughs> um, and uh, he's, also, he's also suggested that, that Chile should build a moat on the north and its north, northern border to keep immigrants out and to protect the border from drug trafficking. So, you know, a, a page pulled right out of Trump's book. Um, dig so the moat. The moat, the moat, build, yeah, dig. dig the moat, dig the moat. <laughs> build the wall, yeah. It's, um, very, he's very transparent. He's very transparent. Yeah. He's, uh, I don't know. So it's Andrews. Andrews are completely different things. What are you talking about? No <laughs> wall, nothing in common whatsoever. Uh, uh, Moat is surely the opposite of a wall. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, it goes down. <laughs> how, how does a candidate like this end up in, in first place with 28% of the vote? Um, I think that's partially because the center right is, is delegitimized because of Pinera's. Um, Pinera's perceived and real faults, including corruption scandals and also what many on the on the right might consider a mistake by having acceded to, to going forward with a constitutional convention, where in the end there's the left the left wing heavy constitutional convention, right? So I think I think people on the right are are scared um, that the constitution might create a country different from, from what they believe Chile was like in the past and should be um and and by the way it's, it's worth noting that Pineda has you know he's been very critical of the constitutional convention and will probably and, and if you know has probably done things to make to make it look more fumbling than it is um so yeah there's definitely a nostalgic vote there and yeah I, I think there's certainly been a sense that the constitutional convention has um has come up with or debated some controversial things as well. Um, I, I, I hated coming across this term, but um, the uh, the Economist described the it, some of the ideas that they debated as a festival of wokery, which I just thought was ludicrous. But it does get at the point that 
some of the things that they've been talking about have obviously started to get people's back up a little bit. Um, whether it's talking yeah. about like certain, some of the economic things they've been talking about or some of the social things they've been talking about, it's certainly that it, it, it's certainly you can that this certainly does seem to be like some backlash to some of the discussions that have been going on. I, I think that that's totally right. Yeah, on the right there is there's backlash and there's i think there's there's legitimate fear of what will come mm. from the constitution not that I, I mean not that i agree with that i think that you know the south african constitution was also at its time called you know ludicrous for including multiculturalism and now mm. i think it's widely regarded as like a, a fantastic document on which to kind of build a country same with the colombian constitution in the 90s like all constitutions are the product of their times and of the ideas of their times, and yeah. so I, I, so you know, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I'm not ascribing to the critique, but I think that it's, it's only natural. Yeah. I, I think, like, I've, yeah, yeah, and I, I think it's something that does always come up with constitution writing as well. That constitutions ultimately are read are com very complex documents, right? And so they, and very complex documents that that are that uh, entrench a huge amount of, uh, a huge amount of law and you know people are going to read them in different ways and 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 when you're talking about a new constitution you're talking about something that is going to to some extent if it's passed be um, embedded in society and therefore potentially change society in quite meaningful ways and but that's also quite complex and so people see that understand that they're important and are also they're also very easy to break on kind of small things small debates become huge ones when you're talking about constitutions because people have the sense then they can't be changed. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think, yes, this, the, the, the nostalgia, the reaction, whatever you want to call it, is playing a huge deal. In addition to the fact that the, the, the center is delegitimized in Chile and there's a, there's a runoff system which allows people to vote for, you know, incentivizes kind of centrifugal voting. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so so cast got um, twenty eight percent of the first round vote, nearly. Um, the Christian Social Front got about twelve percent. Oh, no, eleven percent, rather. Sorry. Um, is this marking the that uh, many uh, kind of voters of the traditional right wing parties are still voting for the right list in the congressional elections, but switching mm. away from the official right wing candidate towards cast? Do you think there's this what's going on here largely? Yeah, yeah I think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that, as and Andreas said before, he, he's been a congressman. Not just been a congressman, he was secretary general of the UDI, the biggest component of the right-wing coalition. Um, he, he, so he's essentially been a party leader. He, so he, he's someone who has this kind of very clear identification with the right-wing list, with the right-wing. As it became clear, um, I, I understand that Katz particularly took off after the first presidential debate. As it became clear that Cast was gaining momentum, um, it, that he was um, on the rise, that it might even look like he might win the election. Um, right-wing members of um, Chile Vamos, the right-wing right coalition, began to move towards him away from their own candidate. So you started having me members of Congress, senior party members, literally voicing their their support forecast. And, um, and not even just from the UDI, the most right-wing component of the coalition, but even from supposedly moderate parties like Eva, uh, within the coalition as well. Um, which to some extent, I think, is a reminder that this is a coalition of parties that was ultimately formed because they liked Pinochet. <laughs> and that legacy has always been there amongst them, but it's, and it's also a reminder. And so I think they saw the failure of their previous 
strategy and move towards him, but also that sends a signal to voters that if you support the right, you can do that. You can, you know, this is not the mainstream right, as it were, rejecting caste. They are very much on board with him. He, you know, as Andrea said earlier, he's not really an outsider in many senses. And, and the fact that that coalition moved towards him in that way is some extent part of that. The the case of Gabriel Boric, who's a 30-year-old, 35-year-old politician, um, and who got mm. the second most, uh, who, who ended up in second place with around 26% of the vote. Um, I think he's he's a little bit more of an outsider, although just because he's had a, a shorter political career. Um, but he, he started out as a, as a student protester in the 2012 student protests, which we didn't talk about, but which were also huge in Chile. And I think the most visible figure at the time was um, Camila Vallejo, but he was he was like on par with, with her in, in many ways. And then he became a congressman in 2014. He ran as an independent and won. Um, and now uh, he was, he was uh, nominated by the coalition Apruebo Dignidad, which was very successful in the constitutional convention. Um, and uh, his party is Convergencia. He's, he's much more of a, I, I would say he was, his, his policy proposals are not, um, how could I say? They're not shocking at all. Like he's been deemed as a kind of like, uh, kind of extreme leftist. But his proposals are things like dealing with the climate crisis, um, having specific policies for indigenous peoples, and entering into dialogue with the Mapuche people, legalizing abortion, which in Chile is, of course, a very kind of maybe radical thing to suggest, but is actually in line with mm. a lot of basically <laughs> a lot of de de democratic countries. Um, Same-sex marriage, um, sex education, redistribution, a new pension system higher minimum wages, 40 hour work weeks. So um, these things come across as maybe slightly radical, but I don't think they really are. But his career as an activist or his, yeah, the fact that he was, a, he was an activist in these kind of huge protests, maybe do mark him out as more of a, mm -hmm. yeah, as a more of a kind of outsider to the system. Although again, he's, he's already been a, a, a deputy um, he's already walked back a lot of the kind of more controversial things he said in his student activism days, such as supporting Maduro um, and the Venezuelan Chavista regime. Um, mm. So, yeah, and, and it, it's worth noting as well that there are you know, controversial elements of his coalition as well. Albeit, I think that probably isn't the main thing that's going on. Uh, I mean, the, the 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 Communist Party is, of course, part of his coalition. Um, he he beat out their candidate surprisingly in the primary um, to um, when, and that candidate is is controversial in several ways. For example, he's uh, uh, members of the Jewish community have accused him of saying some things which were anti-Semitic, for instance. But, um so yeah it, it, it's a it's a broad church within that coalition too just like the others that's right um and 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 in a way he's uh i mean boric and cast really they they come from like they are you know completely opposites in in the sense of like the sort of um styles of politics as well like boric mm has a tattoo and he doesn't wear a tie. He's kind of scruffy looking. Um, yeah. You know, um, and and cast is, you know, very, uh, I don't know, how do you, how do you would say straight laced. Uh, yeah, and much older, kind of more recognizably kind of, uh, I don't know, elite, uh, upper middle class, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but also their obviously their their positions, their policy positions. And lastly, um, I think we we should we should also talk of Franco Parisi, Franco Parisi, of the Party of the People or Partido de la Gente. He he won um, thirteen percent of the vote and came in third place. He ran 
um, with this party, but he's a little bit of a mystery. He was a TV and radio figure, but one of the weird quirks about him is that uh, he he campaigned living in the U.S. without stepping on Chilean soil, and he still got thirteen percent of the vote. Um, and and he won um, a lot of voters in the north of the country, which was traditionally center left. Um, he's very, I mean, he's a really odd, it's a very odd story with him. He couldn't step on Chilean soil because he's been accused of fraud and also of defaulting on um, alimony. So he has a few um, like cases in, in the Chilean justice system that's pending. Um, but we need, I mean, he's also been described as a kind of populist right-wing figure. He was a professor of economics. Um, and, and the reason why it's worth talking about him is because I think that given his, given the fact that Parisi has been outspokenly like socially liberal and economically liberal as well, his votes could go either way. They could go either for Boric or for Cast. Mm -hmm. And so, which happens often with the two round presidential system, um, you know, these, these are kind of sometimes kingmaker candidates, right? Um, mm. So, but he's a very odd figure. Um, mm. odd. Almost, almost gimmicky in a way. Um, <laughs> but when the, when the center has collapsed, when traditional parties are, you know, have such low support, um, you create the space for these sort of candidates to, to become really influential in politics. Mm. No, definitely. Well, speaking of the, of the center, um, I think we should maybe briefly, I think we've already, we've touched upon the state of the kind of, um, the kind of classical right-wing block, I think, but the, the, the center-left block um, ran under this label, um, uh, the kind of new social pacts, they put forward a candidate from the Christian Democrats um, for the president, um, the, um, the, the candidate um, Yasana um Provoste um, won um, about 12% of the vote in the presidential ballot, and then the, the alliance as a whole got um, this is around 17%. So they, they came behind um, they came behind Boric's um, Boric's alliance um, in this. Um, is there anything that we should kind of note more about the um, about the centre left in this election? Because um, I sort of gather that there's been a bit of um, a bit of tensions afterwards about. The, the possibility some of the parties have been very quick to um, unambiguously endorse Boric for a second round and runoff. Um, whereas I think the Christian Democrats maybe because of their kind of stances generally have, have maybe had a bit more trouble going for a straightforward unambiguous endorse. Um, I think that that's totally right. Um, very, yeah, I think that that's totally right. Um, I wonder how much Boric is willing to walk back some of his more socially progressive points. And I don't think he is because he's he's kind of already become public about them, et cetera. So he'll find it hard to gain votes from, mm -hmm. from you know, um, voters such as Christian Democrats who might otherwise vote for, for a left-leaning candidate. But, but I don't know, and, and maybe, and, you know, given the choice, they might sit it out as well. I think also. Yeah, it, uh, it's a hard, it's an interesting one as well, because um, because Boric is already kind of one of the more moderate members of his coalition. Um, so it, how much further can he go without kind of getting, winding up kind of more radical members of, the, of his coalition? Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, so so aside from that, in the legislative uh, elections, the parties that um, gained some seats. So there was this uh, another left wing alliance, uh, Dignity Now, which I believe is the kind of humanist parties um, alliance, um, which gained around five percent of the vote, and then another five percent went to um, the Chilean Greens, um, which, which gained representation as well. Um, so there's, uh, the, but they, but those are that's it. I think for the um, 
the significant yeah. players um, in this. Yeah, and a new social pact did quite decently in the well, they drew with the um, radical left as well in the in, in Congress. Johnny had spoken of like the mechanics of the two round of the runoff system. The fact that uh, whoever wins in, in the second round will not have a legislative majority. Mm. So we'll have to, you know, they have to use this period between now and the second round to position themselves vis-a-vis -vis voters, but also to construct a legislative coalition if they're responsible, if they are responsible candidates. I mean, mm. they can also not do that and win and kind of see what happens yeah. without having, <laughs> without, you know, having uh, legislative. Yeah. I mean, it's it's particularly interesting there as well because the Congress and the, the the two houses of Congress are in quite different situations. So in the Senate, the median vote, as I understand it, runs through these two independents. I think one of I think I think one of this broadly left leaning, one broadly right leaning, <laughs> um, um, and then and then in Congress in the chamber. It essentially runs through the Christian Democrats, from what I understand. Um, albeit, you know, Parisi's party may also prove itself to be um, the, the medium vote on others. So yeah, so it's a weird. There's going to have going to have to form some quite complex legislative coalitions. No matter who is the president, if they're going to pass stuff through both houses, it's 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 hard. To convey just how important um, these elections will be, not only because they mark this kind of watershed where the center will not have a president in Chile, but also because, and therefore, you know, a whole host of implications. It'll also be as a president without with a divided government, probably, and also the president that oversees the referendum for the constitutional convention. Mm. And presidents have, of course, a huge agenda power. And so you've seen Piñera try to undermine a lot of the constitution. Uh, a president that's favorable to the draft of the constitution can make a whole difference with regards to whether or not the constitution passes. So that might actually be the biggest legacy of whoever's elected. Cast, cast will be very aggressive and will probably seek to undermine it and can probably sway a lot of voters um, and the moment of the referendum, and Boric mm -hmm. will be fav probably favorable to, toward it, given the... Yeah, though it's worth noting as well that depending on how popular or unpopular those presidents become, that, you know, they may well... If you, if, if for example, it's probably, it would probably be, uh, you know, it's a very short period of time, so they may well, so you think that they have a bit of a honeymoon by the time that we referendum swings around but on the off chance that but they if they became very unpopular you know they might actually end up kind of pushing voters um, in the opposite direction to the way that they advocate that sometimes does happen <laughs> that's the nature of polarization um <laughs> all right um so should we are we uh, wrap up there with chile i think um mm. i would just say before we go that i the thing I have um, very much answers for the best party logo, worst party logo. And I think that they are both found within the same coalition as well. Um, I think uh, New Social Pact has both the best and worst in it. I think the best, the, Lib the Liberal Party of Chile, I think, has an amazing little logo. And Party for Democracy has an absolutely abysmal one that looks like someone did it on Word Art in 2003. Um, I mean that, that that is very much their brand. So <laughs> <laughs> the party that was very much in the ascendant around 2003, not so much now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's got this weird kind of like wavy text, which doesn't seem to fulfill any function. So mm -hmm. people check that one out. Um, I think we'll maybe we'll attach these two to the the tweets and see yeah. if people agree mm -hmm. as well. But yeah, yeah, that's my name. There's, oh. there's, there's, a ballot, there's a ballot box prize for whoever finds a party logo that has Comic Sans as its font. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the prize is. But, yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll get a shout out, I guess. I know. <laughs> oh, <no. Okay. laughs> All right. Okay, we will leave it there for today. I think the next election is also Latin America, right? 
that will yes, be. Yes, we've got Honduras. Honduras. Um, well, so... um, a few days from now, but presumably our our episode will be a little later than that. But... Yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. So we will see you then. Um, please remember to rate and subscribe wherever you're listening, and um, have a good um, have a good week. All right. Bye. Bye.